Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Philip Campo. Based in Pittsburgh, Philip is Assistant Department Head and Associate Teaching Professor in the Computational Biology Department at Carnegie Mellon University. In addition to his academic and administrative work, Philip is a passionate supporter of a variety of online and offline educational initiatives. For example, he co-founded the computational biology learning platform Rosalind, and he helped lead the development of the first computational biology MOOC or Massively Open Online Course on Coursera all the way back in 2013. You can follow Philip on Twitter at Philip Campo and check out his website at compo.cbd.cmu.edu. Philip is the author of the book Biological Modeling, A Short Tour. In the book, Philip introduces the reader to what biological modeling is through fascinating examples like how zebras get their stripes and how algorithms can be trained to see biological cells. In this interview, we're going to talk about Philip's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and publishing courses. So thank you very much, Philip, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Len. Great to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit, bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into studying mathematics in a career in computational biology. So I grew up in a, in a small town of about 2,500 to 3,000 in uh, North Carolina in the foothills of the mountains um, and went through public school system there and had uh, some really great teachers and some Interesting teachers as well. I'll leave it at that. Um, I think we could fill an entire hour probably with uh, some stories that some of which are horrifying from that experience, but I also had some fantastic teachers along the way and some people who, who really fostered um, a love of mathematics and an ability in mathematics. So I was able to get connected to problem solving competitions and, and things like that. Um, so I had a sense that I wanted to be a college professor even before I went to study in undergrad. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I think I picked an undergrad institution where that desire made a lot of sense. So I went to Davidson College in North Carolina, um, in part because I could play tennis in college. It was going to be difficult. It was a dream of mine, really, to play competitive tennis at a division one school. And I wanted to go somewhere where I, that was possible, but that also had really good academics. Um, and so I wound up at Davidson and Davidson, most people know it because that's where Steph Curry went to school, but it's also um, the top liberal, art, liberal arts college in the, in the South. Um, and so, and it also has division one athletics. So about a quarter of the student body is a division one athlete because it's a small you know, 1700, 1800 student enrollment type place. So it fit uh, what I wanted to do as well as being close to home. And that's where I did my undergraduate studies. Um, I majored in mathematics there and got to play tennis and, and make some close bonds with, with lifelong friends in that way. Um, and it didn't knock me off wanting to be a professor because I had some absolutely fantastic professors across whatever subject I was studying, not just in mathematics, but across the liberal arts spectrum. Um, and I think it gave me a sense of what a professor is that um, now that I'm at a large research institution uh, was not reflective of exactly how all professors are or what they care about because I was at a place where teaching was sort of at the forefront and you didn't have graduate students. Um, and there was a, a, 
a high premium placed on being well-rounded. So um, even though I, I knew I wanted to be a professor, having that experience made me want to be a professor who focuses on teaching. And um, I spent a year after that at Cambridge University, I got a, a small a scholarship through Davidson actually a full, to have a full scholarship to study mathematics at Cambridge and to complete what's called part three of the mathematical tripos. So um, undergraduates at Cambridge there have a, a very grueling curriculum that they go through and then they're, they're allowed to continue on and do an additional year of study if they like. And then they open that additional year of study to international students as well. So it was an extremely international mix of, of people um, that I found myself with, 150 or so, I think, maybe a bit more, um, all of whom were like very intent on studying mathematics at a place where you could take these courses that were unbelievably rigorous. Um, and I think that I would add that it reinforced my desire to be a teacher as much as my experience in undergrad had in a different way, because a lot of the teaching was really bad. Some of it was good, um, but I felt like the material was unbelievably advanced, but I essentially taught myself a huge amount of the material and scraped by on the final exams and, um, and so on. And I thought, well, this is in a different sense, making me want to be somebody who focuses on teaching undergrads for a living. Um, I knew I needed a PhD to do that. Um, I'd had a little bit of research experience in mathematics through my undergrad uh, experience, but I wasn't inspired by doing mathematics research um, in the way that I think other graduate students in mathematics are. And so that was a difficulty because I knew what where point B was. I knew I wanted to be a professor and focus on teaching, but getting there was a somewhat of a struggle in the sense that um, you really need to care very deeply about studying a single research project for a period of five plus years. It may be a lot more. Um, you know, in some cases, people take 10, 11 plus years to do a PhD. That's a huge part of one's life. And you're working in a field, in an area where to get a PhD in mathematics, you need really probably only a couple of publications. And those publications, those research papers may get cited, if you're lucky, a couple dozen times. So it's not a place you're going to obtain any sort of fame. Um, and you're gonna be working on a problem where you are working on something that a tiny community of people around the world has any real understanding of. There are a lot of mathematicians maybe who could understand it, but in terms of when you actually sit down and reach the frontier of mathematics research, it can be a pretty lonely place. Um, and I found that out firsthand in a PhD that I completed at UC San Diego. I would say that I um, went out there and uh, didn't have a full picture of this. I was just set on point B. And I was fortunate that I happened to, to select a, an academic advisor, a PhD advisor, who had happened to have funding from Howard Hughes Medical Institute to work on education projects. So he's a, Pavel Pevsner was my PhD advisor. And he, in the field of computational biology, is someone that sort of everyone knows. He has worked on 
fundamental problems in how we take biological data and build algorithms to analyze it for decades, um, notably in the area of assembling genomes. So if we want to read out what is the human genome, this ultimately boils down to you have a bunch of fragments of DNA from multiple cells that all have the same DNA, and then you want to overlap uh, fragments of DNA since they came from the same initial source to produce what the underlying genome is. Um, and that is a computational problem because you may have hundreds of millions of fragments. You can't do it manually. And uh, he has worked in this area and a few other areas and has really made a name for himself in terms of research. But he also cares about teaching and happened to have education funding that I didn't know about when I approached him uh, to, to be a PhD advisor. So things were a little bit serendipitous there. Um, and he says that he was taken aback when he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to be somebody who's like a, an undergrad liberal, liberal arts professor um, and focus full time or as much of my time as possible on teaching because he'd never had anybody tell him that before. It's a strange thing to tell to somebody who may have millions of dollars of research funding and is at the forefront of their field that you want to be a teacher for a living. Um, but fortunately, I found the right person there. And um, this sort of led to me having passion projects that fortunately became part of what my PhD thesis was. I did a fine PhD thesis that got its citations and that um, I look back upon fondly, but I also at the same time had a chance to work on increasingly scalable online education projects with Pavel um, that allowed me to have a little bit of a reputation for for doing working on in this area. And in addition to, you know, doing things like being an instructor in a pre-calculus course or TAing a bunch of calc courses, which are required of math students in order to get paid um, as a PhD student, um, you know, to have these, this sort of portfolio, so to speak, of online education experiences helped me out, I think, a lot when it came time to apply to be a professor. Um, and I found a, a, a position at Carnegie Mellon that would be in computational biology that was focused on teaching. So even though Carnegie Mellon is a, an R1 large research institution, they have a track for people who want to focus on teaching and administration. A lot of universities have this sort of role. And I believe um, that was the only position in the world that would be within the field of computational biology focused on teaching specifically. Um, and so that was another kind of point of, of fortune where um, in 2015, I started my position at Carnegie Mellon on the teaching track. And that's where I've been uh, since then. Thanks very much for sharing that. Um, you, you, you captured sort of the, the, the sort of nuances of every step I thought very well there, um, uh, including this, you know, the particular challenges of a PhD or the, the tripos at, at Cambridge and things like that. Um, uh, you said a couple of very interesting things at the beginning there, um, given, given your, your um, you know, interest that you developed over time in, in teaching and things like that, which was, uh, you said you said horrible teachers or horrible experiences with teachers. Um, and you also mentioned uh, getting into problem solving. And I wanted to ask you if you're, if you're willing to talk about it, I mean, because this has actually come up in discussions on the, on the podcast before, particularly for, I mean, particularly because a lot of lean pub authors are people out there trying to write, 
you know, teach people things and show people how to do things. And sometimes it's because they've, they're, they're emulating the, all the positive, great experiences they had in their life. And sometimes there's, there's a reactionary element to it as well. Um, and I'm, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't describe my own experiences as horrible, but I had some bad ones myself that, you know, when I, at an early age, sort of realizing that, you know, teachers aren't necessarily heroes. Um, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind maybe talking, you know, not, not necessarily the details unless you want to, but just sharing generally what those horrible experiences were. Well, the darker ones would be people who wound up spending time in prison for horrific crimes. Okay. So I wouldn't get into those, but um, I, the, the example I always give is that I had a high school biology class that I hated so much that I vowed I would never study biology again uh, after that course. And I often will start a talk to students about what computational biology is with the question, who here hated their biology class in high school? And it's about 85 to 90%. And Often these are talks that we give as, as prospective student talks for students who have been admitted or who are applying to Carnegie Mellon who wanna to come to study uh, undergrad there. And I have noticed it's almost exclusively with their parents that all the parents hated biology. And fortunately, not all of the students hated biology, although most did. And so maybe we're headed in the right direction there, I, I find some hope that fewer people hate it. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of issues, but largely it was a subject that seemed unbelievably based off of memorization, uh, filling out, we, we just filled out a bunch of worksheets and memorized a lot of facts that I don't think I could tell you one of them. Um, we had uh, you know, we did like the standard dissection. There was no, I think we had a fetal pig and a frog and there was no guidance given on what we were even supposed to do or what we were looking at. Um, it, it was that poorly sort of organized. Um, and, and so I thought, I, I'm just surprised that anyone would be a biologist if this is truly what it was. And I had no context of the beauty of biology and I had no idea that while I was doing this class that we were just filling out hundreds of pages of worksheets um, and memorizing things so that we could do well on an end of course test, you know, state sponsored test. Meanwhile, there was this revolution happening in biology where biology was going from sort of an experimental field to one where questions are answered by analyzing data. Um, so, and I, I think it's a cool, life lesson in terms of don't promise that you're never going to do something again, because it might come back and bite you. And in, in my case, it's like, you know, what I do with my entire life is trying to, to find cool ways of teaching biology or to um, show biologists how things are, are, are really done in terms of computational data analysis in the field. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to asking you about questions about that, about biology and, and data science and the big transformation and things like that. But it's it's funny, the kind of um, parallels. I grew up in um, southern Saskatchewan um, in mm -hmm. Canada, and um, your your description of a terrible biology class maps 
quite well uh, onto, onto my own experience. I remember being quite angry. I mean, I, I never quite put it together with the lack of guidance when it came to dissecting the frog that I, that I had to do, but that I did, that there was something just wrong about what was happening, right? I was like, well, what, why am I doing this? What do you mean? Like, how am I supposed to know what a liver is? Like, you know, you showed me a two-dimensional picture from a 20-year-old textbook and like what, that's not enough guidance to, to do surgery. Um, and I, I, in particular, remember really hating being graded on how well I could draw. Um, I'm like, isn't this biology? You know, and I mean, these are the sort of crude thoughts of someone, you know, a sort of young teenager, but like, you know, I just, I could tell like there's, you know, and it, it wasn't until later that I sort of put together in my kind of haphazard way that, oh, this might be just the kind of echo of the 19th century gentleman scientist who walked around with a notebook. And it was very important for them to be able to, to draw things because, you know, they might go on a two year long journey on a, on a sailboat. And if, you know, when they come back from that island, they better have been able to draw things reasonably well or there'd be no record of what they saw. Uh, but being able to do things with kind of like, you know, test tubes and pencils and things like that, you know, there was, there was still some echo of that uh, in even, you know, even at the time that I would have been, been studying, um, you know, it would have been, that would have been outdated. Yes. And I think um, it's not to indict all biology teachers. I think that they just have an extremely uphill climb often because the curricula are getting better, but they're getting better at a slow rate. Um, and often the biology teachers may have to kind of go outside of what they're asked to really teach as part of that curriculum in order to show students something that's really neat and cool. I mean, uh, biology has been really interesting for a long time. I mean, I was amazed when I finally went back and read on the origin of species and how, um, how brilliant it is, like cover to cover. Um, or how Mendel's experiments by modern standards probably would have been fraudulent. Um, and you've got, when you go into the 20th century, you've got experiments um, to unlock, like what is, what is DNA? What is it made up of? Uh, you have the genetic code that takes triplets of DNA nucleotides and converts them into amino acids by this system. And those amino acids are building blocks for proteins that do everything in your cell. In your cells and, and these experiments to identify what is actually going on in the cell and what the identity of these um, molecules is that you can't see, um, or, or even maybe with an electron microscope, you could very, you could start to elucidate this, but you wouldn't be able to see any change and to sort of understand that change in the cell without ever observing it. These experiments are just downright genius and students really don't learn them. Um, for the most part. And it's, it's this extremely strange dichotomy. I would say the only thing that I find comparable to it is mathematics, actually, because what mathematics is and how mathematics is taught in schools are so wildly different from each other. Um, people have written about this. I wouldn't be the first to say it, um, but it's truly shocking. Yeah, that actually, I think that's, that's actually um, one, one thing I wanted to pick on that I think is pick up on that I think is related to that, as you mentioned, get it, when you were sort of younger, getting into problem solving. I and mean, that's actually a very specific term of art. Um, and I think that a lot of people might think of that as, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of kind of paradoxical to say they think that's, they think that's math, or they think that's not math. But if you're coming from the wrong perspective on both sides of what math is and what problem solving is, any comparison is going to be confusing. But um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what what problem solving is, and it's it's something that actually attracts a lot of younger younger people. Maybe if the the classes that they're in in school maybe aren't that attractive, but they find this problem solving thing, which has this whole culture around it. And yeah, I was wondering if you could talk. And then it's related to the kind of 
things you're talking about when you're talking about solving these problems about what's going on inside a cell. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about what problem solving is, particularly, let's say, for teenagers who get into it. Yes, I think I got into it really when I was maybe in seventh grade. I had a really good teacher who got me involved in the math counts, which I think is the middle school level version of that. And there's high school versions of, of problem solving that wind up being um, culminating in the, the US and then the International Mathematics Olympiad, where you have mathematics questions um, about different sorts of things like, uh, and then you're, you have a timed exam where you have to answer the questions. Um, and this is, yeah, it's a world that I think, you know, not a lot of people are, are that aware of and that you have these competitions and they're extremely challenging exams. And they'll ask questions like, yeah, there are some good examples of these sorts of questions on places like three blue, one brown on YouTube that have done a great job of explaining them. Here's like one example of a question would be that I saw on that channel. If you put pick four points on the outside of a sphere, then they're going to form a tetrahedron if you connect the four points. A simpler example would be you have three points on the outside of a circle uh, and they form a triangle. Just connect the three points. So what are the chances in each of those two cases? You have a three-dimensional case of the sphere and a two-dimensional case of the circle. What are the, what's the probability that if you just chose the points randomly that the triangle or the tetrahedron, as it were, would contain the center of the circle or the sphere? Um, and it has a nice clear-cut answer that you can get to. And that's a very challenging question for the 3D case. Um, but that's the sort of question that you can pretty quickly explain it to someone. But the idea of getting an answer to that and not just having an answer, but having verifiable proof of an answer, like you, you know that your answer is 100% correct and can justify it, almost like a legal argument. Um, that's a different matter entirely. And that's what mathematics really is. And so um, you know, a simpler example would be like the Pythagorean theorem. You know, uh, students know a squared plus b squared is equal to c squared. We drill that into them. We do a good job of making sure that that covers the population pretty well, even though it's not 100% clear to me, someone with a PhD in mathematics, why they need it. Um, that's another matter. But we do, you know, we do manage to teach that fact. It has an explanation. Very few students learn about that explanation. And that explanation is what mathematics really is. The explanation itself can be done in a variety of ways and it's beautiful. And, and if, I, if I have somebody who has a little bit of a knowledge of high school algebra, um, I find I can show it to them in five minutes or so. Um, and that to me is the divide between sort of high school or middle school mathematics courses and problem solving, which is trying to get more at what mathematics really is, which is um, being able to not just state a fact, but to know why it's the case and to be able to justify it. Yeah, no, yeah, that's a really great description of the of the of the uh, area. And um, you know, thanks for bringing up the competitions and stuff like that that happened as well. Um, you remind me, reminding me of um, when I was doing my my doctorate it was in English, but I had a had a friend who was doing a doctorate in math. And uh, one day he was, you know, I saw him with a backpack, and I'm like, "Where are you going?" He goes, "Glasgow." I'm like, "Why?" He's like, "They can't get the penguins to hatch at the zoo." It was something along those lines. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about stuff, but like, I think he did fluid dynamics or something like that, but it was like, it was that, that was when it, it sort of finally clicked for me, like what he did, right. Was solve problems. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's it's really as you mentioned, um, you know, there's one of the things that makes this this sort of problem solving culture so attractive to some people is that there's no there's no there's usually not one answer. Um, it's it, there's many ways of approaching a problem, and just because you solve it one way doesn't mean you've exhausted the the the, the interest in that problem because you can then think of another way to solve it, and then you can often find your way into um, mathematical concepts yourself without knowing you know, sort of like understood mathematical concepts yourself without knowing that's what you're doing. And then that, that becomes part of, part of your journey along the way. Um, and it, including just, just fascinating things like, you know, you can have, you can have a terrible problem that a problem that you're having a terrible time solving and then read a paper and it's like, oh, that's, that's how you do it. Right. Yes. And, and I, I think about the same thing, like to the Pythagorean theorem example, um, and that there being multiple ways of getting at, getting at it and that there's, you know, a couple hundred or however many, different proofs of this statement, none of them still provide any real intuition about why it is that if you draw a right triangle and then you form squares from each of the three sides of the triangle, that the areas of the smaller squares, when you add those two squares areas together would equal the area of the third. That's an extremely strange, non-intuitive fact. And that's what the Pythagorean theorem is, right? And so often you'll have justifications in mathematics that make the theorem, what it is you're trying to prove makes sense. Like, oh, that's, I kind of get that. That's intuitive and obvious now. And even though you can justify why this has to be the case, it doesn't provide any intuition on why, you know, if there were some higher power dictating why these things have to be true, why in the world would this be true? So I think that's a good example too, of sometimes you don't have this sort of perfect, elegant, intuitive explanation of why something is true in math. And, um, and of course, uh, you know, giving people problems to solve is, is a very great way of teaching as well. Um, and, uh, and that leads me to ask you about um, Rosalind, which you co-founded, I believe, while you were doing your PhD at, at UC San Diego. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about what, what, that, what that very popular um, platform was, was built for and who, who used it. It's funny. So I was a teaching assistant in mathematics courses at, at UC San Diego. Um, and we would get you know, regardless of who was TAing which particular course, we would get the same courses every semester. You know, the same courses are taught every semester, but also they'd be the same professors usually. Um, they might change slightly, but the, the homework assignments were the exact same. And I think that really the first point at which I started thinking about Rosalind was, I was a TA for a calculus course I put together a solutions guide to the homework, not knowing that they were going to give the same homework in the next semester. And I, I wrote out detailed solutions for the students in the class after the homework was due so that they could see here's sort of the cleanest way of, of going about solving these problems. And the students really liked it. But then the professor stepped in and said, you really shouldn't do that because we're going to give this exact same homework assignment next semester, and that will spread around like wildfire, and that's what people will use to solve the homeworks. Not realizing, of course, that the solutions manuals to these textbooks are very easy to get. I mean, they take five seconds of Googling to get. So if you want the answers, they're not hard to find. Um, But I just thought, I thought of this being my job, you know, that PhD students, a lot of people, another, if you're thinking of talking about, you know, misconceptions, another misconception is that PhD students are students that they pay tuition or that they may take on debt. You know, it's not quite like a medical school student 
PhD students in the sciences are essentially apprentices. And in a discipline like mathematics, um, because you have people who may not have research funding for students, they make their apprenticeship salary, which is very meager, um, by serving as teaching assistants. And I just thought of this system where we're in a public school system. And yes, we go in and for an hour a week, we'll do a recitation where we work problems on the blackboard. But a lot of what we do, we're just graders. We're just sitting here grading exams and, and grading homework problems. And then I thought about how many students, especially given that this is like a multi, you know, over multiple universities using the same textbook, grading the same problems by hand, semester in, semester out, over and over and over again, like year after year. And I thought that's really strange. It's a very strange system of human labor that's extremely inefficient. And I had started being connected back to computational biology at that time through my research. And Pavel had a textbook at that time. And, and having gone through that textbook and seeing the algorithms that are fundamental to biology in terms of data analysis, especially with respect to DNA. Going back to my example from previously of how do, is it that, how do you assemble a genome from fragments? There are algorithms like some of the ones that Pavel has worked on, but across a lot of different areas of computational biology. Another example would be, say I have two genes, one from say our hemoglobin gene and a guinea pig's hemoglobin gene. That's representable as a string of amino acids and you want to identify how they're similar. So what, how is it that you would compare them given that in that case, the genes are relatively short, but you might have longer genes and don't want to do it by hand. Um, there's a, you can do that for two genes, or you could do it for, say, 100 coronavirus genomes. The coronavirus genome is about 30,000 nucleotides long, and you, have, you could take 100 from different patients, and you want to line up all the letters and see where the differences are, because that can help you identify variants, for example. In both of those cases, you have extremely fundamental approaches that were developed, have been developed to solve these problems that are all about here's two strings or here's a hundred strings, strings being like words of letters. And we want to compare them and find out where they're similar and where they're different and slide symbols around and so on to line them up in the way that makes the most sense because that's going to infer how they've evolved. Um, and it's, I thought it's the same sort of thing you could have a lot of students learning about this, especially as the discipline is growing and you have hundreds of universities that teach a course in this type of area, fundamental bioinformatics algorithms. Um, and I was just thinking, does that mean that they're grading all the code by hand or that everybody has produced all of their own auto graders for these tasks? Um, and it makes a whole lot more sense to just build a central repository and say for the neighbor joining algorithm or for pairwise sequence alignment by Needleman Wunsch, right? Like papers that pr people probably haven't heard of, but that have several thousand or tens of thousands of citations because they're how biology gets done. Um, let's just have one auto grader that students can write some code and they'll get a random data set from the website and they can uh, plug it into their code and then take the output and put it in the website and it gives them a check mark if they're done and then they know they implemented that algorithm and it takes all any sort of human aspect out of 
this process and automate something that's going on all, all over the place. So that's what sort of the conception of Rosalind was. And um, at the, in parallel, Pavel had a different student. He had two labs, one in St. Petersburg, Russia. He had a different student who had the same sort of idea, but building this auto grader more locally and in, in terms of his own teaching. And so it grew from there. Um, and you know, our hope was maybe we could get like 10 universities on board. Uh, and we had no idea that it was gonna wind up reaching you know, hundreds of thousands of people um, because it wound up as an independent resource for learning. We figured out as we, as we went along, we started to get people who were um, using this, just the public using it and it get, getting posted places that it was uh, outgrowing its original conception. And it was now just a place where people could learn about our field in an open and free way. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. I was especially interested in hearing about the, uh, the the inspiration for sort of building something that would auto grade and kind of take the human element out of it, because the work that was being done in the first place wasn't very human in any case, right? You know, this sort of this rote, rote grading of things. Yes. And and when you when you realize that actually this can be automated, um, that's better for everyone. I think a lot of people might hear, oh, we automated it, we took the human element out of it, that this is sort of like detracting from it or something like that. And not not at all. This is actually making it much better uh, for everyone. Yes, the idea is that to free your your teaching assistant's time to be spent on things that are more relevant, right? Like actually working with students and that type of thing. Yeah, well, working directly with the students where where the human element can be at play. Um, Certainly. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, that reminds me actually. So I mean, we could talk. You've 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 written about your teaching philosophy on your on your website, um, and you've also got programming for lovers where you have a manifesto. Um, and uh, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that, that, you know, your teaching philosophy and the programming for lovers project. So that's a, a project that um, is still sort of in progress. I'm planning a larger release of it on its own website. Um, but the idea of this course would be that we tend to teach programming to people that, and I say we meaning the computer science community, Computer scientists tend to teach programming to other people that are going to be computer scientists. So hackers and people who like video games and the, the examples that they tend to pull for, for teaching this uh, will come from mathematics or computer science. Um, and that's great if you're interested in those fields. I mean, had I had an exposure to something like that in high school, I might've gotten into computer science instead of mathematics. It wasn't even on my radar that you could use math for computers. But at the same time, you have a wealth of different uh, processes that go on in science, whether it's some of the examples I've given from biology or something like building a gravity simulator, right? To simulate the motions of celestial bodies. Um, that are great examples of how to program certain things, how to build a system and, and implement it in a programming language and then visualize it and analyze it and so on. Um, and so I've taught a course for seven years now that I inherited from Carl Kingsford at, at CMU where I've added a bunch of scientific examples where the idea of teaching the programming course is let's just present a scientific narrative and that will lead us to a point at which we need a computer to, an to answer some question. That's a scientific question. And then what skills do we need to answer that question? Well, let's get those skills and then let's return and answer the question scientifically. 
um, and with using the computer. Um, I think that's that's relatively unique. You don't have courses that are are focused on learning computer science, but from the lens of a certain discipline. Um, there, it's an area that's growing, um, and I think it's also growing in terms of you know another part of programming education that's growing is in websites that are built to try and um, attract as many students as possible into lower barriers to entry for entry to learning how to code. And those projects are really, really good um, in some respects in terms of you know, knocking down barriers and convincing people that they can do something that maybe they thought was reserved for nerdy people at MIT and, and Carnegie Mellon and places like that right? Um, where they're not so great is that often they're made with venture capital money and they want to demonstrate to whoever, whomever, that the project is successful and their metrics for these success, this success. And often those metrics are based off of, you know, how many active learners did you have and exactly how many questions were they able to answer? And you boost those metrics by watering down content. So that's what I've seen when I've looked at a lot of places. Now, I'm not indicting every online education project, but I, I tend to find, and I find this through my own teaching at, at CMU, the number of students in the last seven years, when I go into my class and ask who here has experience in, in programming, the number of hands that go up, it's practically like universal now, as opposed to it being a small minority of students seven years ago. That's fantastic. However, you have students who have an exposure to a discipline, but they lack the rigor of, of and the challenge of that um, that is inherent to the discipline. It, it is hard in a great way. And when you get it, it's a wonderful thing, right? All that is critical. And a lot of times they get very skin deep exposures to, the, to this field. And then they hit a point where they don't understand something or they realize that it's hard. And then they often may internalize it or they hit a dead end and there's no sort of bridge to take them to truly this is a skill that people can learn. You do have to have some quantitative know-how, but that's also another skill, right? It's just critical that you get it at the right point in your educational uh, timeline. Um, but I, my idea for the course is to sort of combine a rigorous experience like what you would get with a a classic introduction to computer science um, at a top-notch place with some fun applications that are provided from, from science and to try and find a way that's still accessible to, to beginners. So that's a project that I'm currently working on that I really wanna see grow in the coming months, years, um, and that I think could have you know, as big an impact as some of the other stuff I've had the, the privilege of working on. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's just such an interesting um, challenge, even to articulate. It seems, and I've learned this, you know, sort of doing research for this interview, uh, even to articulate the kind of number of of things that are intersecting that that you're trying to bring together. Um, you mentioned, for example, it, I think it was the first time, just in in your explanation, the first time in this interview that it came up, which is the term computer science. Um, and in my introduction, I mentioned that you were in the um in the Department of Computational Biology at Carnegie Mellon, but you're in the School of Computer Science. That Department of Computational Biology is, is in the School of Computer Science. Um, and so I, I guess maybe probably one of the, the best ways to sort of 
work out all the things that are coming together in this. Could you talk a little bit about what someone would, how, what their program would be like as an undergraduate if they majored in computational biology? What, sure. what, courses, what courses would they take? What kind of people are you trying to get in through the, um, I think it's called the um, pre-college program in computational biology. So if, if someone's listening and they're, let's say they don't, they don't know anything about all this, but it all sounds super interesting. What, what would you study if you did a major in computational biology uh, so at CMU? We- Yes, we have. So it's, there's two programs here. We have a high school program. Our pre-college program in computational biology is open largely to rising seniors in high school. And the we look really only for students who are, are strong quantitatively and who like science, especially biology, um, because there's a, a huge number of, of students out there who actually do like biology, want to study biology, and are just generally interested in science. Um, and we have a, a sort of, a, a sort of research project where we take students out on Pittsburgh's three rivers on a boat trip. It's about a 40 mile boat trip. Um, and we do educational activities with them on the boat. And every so often we stop and sample water. Then they go into the lab. They isolate the DNA from that, um, their water samples. And then the purpose of the program is to analyze those water samples uh, using algorithms that they themselves write. Um, so the idea is this, there being this harmony between lab collection or um, field collection, laboratory experimental work, and computational data analysis. That is really what biology is all about. So to show students this in a three-week intensive, eight-hour-a-day summer program. And I've been amazed at, at how many students we've, we've had that have been interested in this. Um, because we didn't know, you know, as, as sort of one of only a very small number of programs that teach computational biology to high school students globally, we didn't know if the students would show up and then they really started showing up in droves, um, which has been fantastic. And so that's a program I love getting to work with. Um, and I get to use my programming materials for students to, to get up to speed in programming. And then by the end of the three weeks, they, they code all these algorithms together um, they're all like extremely strong in programming, which is something to be proud of too. And then they go off to, to different universities and so on. And we're hopeful that, that they take what they learn and continue to study biology. But if not, that's fine too. Our undergrad program is a four-year major. So um, the School of Computer Science at CMU is a, a place that's essentially a top three place to study computer science historically alongside MIT and Berkeley. Um, MIT being the big name that has like the biggest household reach, but in terms of rankings and prestige and uh, sort of the research accomplishments of professors and the quality of the education and and so on, um, it's a top three institution. Um, For 30 years, you can only study computer science. And over the past few years, we've seen a change to have now four majors. So now we have artificial intelligence, human computer interaction, and computational biology as major options. And uh, CompBio is actually the first non-computer science major. And um, the idea being that computer science is becoming extremely broad and influencing a lot of different parts of our lives. Um, 30 years-ish ago when they, they started a computer science major program, it was much more esoteric right, in terms of what you could do with a computer science major. And now the demand for people working in this area is huge across every 
aspect of the economy, right? And so um, that exists in many places at the graduate level. Um, but what's neat about CMU is we now have multiple majors at the undergrad level. So if you were a comp bio major, for example, you're still a computer science student, which means you still take what I call a um, brain car wash of mathematics and computer science core courses. But then you also take some biology foundational courses where you start to realize like what bio is sort of thing. Um, and you have uh, a computational biology core of coursework too. So you have a lab course that's based off of, you know, heavy data analysis. Um, I teach the first course in the major called Great Ideas in Computational Biology um, that actually won a teaching award this spring at CMU, which I was very happy about, um, that shows students, like, what are the big ideas that have made biology a data discipline? And then students take advanced coursework that, that kind of brings them closer to what real companies and real researchers are working on and the methods that are at the frontier of the field when they're in their later couple of years. You mentioned um, biology and data. Um, and that reminds me of a, a line I wrote down from a video that I watched um, yesterday where you talk, you say biology is now fundamentally a data science. And when you talk about sort of introducing students to what biology really is, and it's not, um, what was a, a friend of mine who was a biologist once complained about how people often had a kind of fried egg view of a cell, you know, it's like a circle with a circle in it. And, uh, you know, it is, it, as you mentioned before, it is easy to get, get very sarcastic about these kinds of things, but, you know, people- Because people it's work, been flattened against a plate. Right, right, right. Because it, it doesn't between, necessarily ref reflect its reality. Yeah, yeah. Go because be, because because of mi uh, microscope technology and the way that worked and things like that, and then you had to put light underneath it and, and stuff like that. But um, all and it's it's interesting. You, and of course, I know you brought that up on purpose to say that the way we we view things depends on the technology that we use and the, the, the images we have in our heads depends on the technology we use. But when it comes to the complexity of what of, of what biology is, I just wanted to read, and, and I wanted to move on now to talking about your book, specifically Biological Modeling, a short tour. There's this great passage at the beginning that I'm just gonna read, um, which, I, which I love, which you say, um, and I'm quoting here, you may feel like a single coherent being, but you are just a skin covered bag of trillions of cells, about half of which are bacteria that act largely independently these cells are full of proteins, complex macromolecules that perform nearly every cellular function. If a protein could move in a straight line, then it would move at 20 kilometers per hour or faster, meaning that the protein would cover a distance one billion times its length every second, analogous to a car traveling 20 billion kilometers per hour. However, the cytoplasm filling the cell is so densely packed with water molecules that the protein pings off off them, frequently changing direction, uh, end quote. And I just, I just love how that, that um, it, it sort of grounds things in ourselves. Uh, but, but when it, but it, but it really, I mean, what it really brought home to me reading, it was like, just really how it, it biology is a data science. It's a data science. And I hope it's clear that with the quote like that, you know, I think, I don't know, that's me trying to get into somebody else's head the wonder of biology from the perspective of I thought it was x and it's actually y and look at like there's a lot going on in what you just read right to try and densely grab somebody's attention because all that to me is just amazing like that you have a um a system that's so complex with things just moving unbelievably fast with all this energy and bouncing off of each other and that somehow the whole symphony makes sense because of all these random interactions is amazing. Like our conversation is ultimately dependent upon all of that. And I mean, there's other things lurking in that, like about half of our cells aren't even ours, they're bacteria. They're just hanging out. Sometimes they are helping us symbiotically. But also what I think is a, a grand challenge of biology, which is 
you have a reductive model, you know, reductive models, but then how do they, how do we take a holistic view of those reductive models? How do they connect? How is it that all these random interactions of particles drive what goes on in the cell, but then the react the interactions of cells often behaving independently producing large scale behaviors. Um, that is something that is pretty much open. And um, we hint on on show in one of the chapters, we we hint on trying to connect completely understanding a system on the level of its machinery. And then being able to infer things about that system because we built a model that was good enough to be able to step back from it on a higher view and understand it. And that um, has been done in the, you know, the, the, the biggest and probably the most landmark example that I could think of, of this being done would be taking a very simplistic bacterium and building a model of each of its processes independently and then connecting those processes according to what's known biologically. And then you've got everything simulated on a computer. So you click run and let the computer simulation work. So this is about 10 years old that they did this for a, a simple bacterium. Um, they still haven't taken that work and extended it to E. coli. So what was cool, partly cool about, um, about that model is that they were able to look at the model and see what happened at the end, you know, measure the concentrations of particles over time and, and look at different processes as they interacted and, and the system just sort of worked. And then they were able to reach biological hypotheses that weren't actually experimentally validated or known at that time, because here's what the model told us. Maybe that's nonsense. Maybe it's true. Um, if the model is great, then it's true but it might just be an, a figment of the model not being perfect. But there were actually examples of the model made predictions that people went into a lab and validated. Um, and I think to me, that's the big, like one enormous frontier of biology is doing that for increasingly complex organisms. Let's do it for a complicated bacterium next. You know, Let's uh, have some sort of colony of bacteria that we simulate. And then let's get ever and ever more complex in terms of what it is that we can model. Can we model a human cell? We're not there yet. We can model human cell systems, very sim simplistic representations of it, but no one has built, I don't think, a, a complete working model of a human cell. So then what about an organ, right? That's based off of cells. And I think my point with that is that at what point are we um, like then heading towards replicating human intelligence on a computer. Um, it's not gonna be anytime soon, so there's no reason to be concerned, but you can see how incremental changes to this, you know, if you go back 50 years, no one would have thought you could completely replicate a bacterium on a computer, um, and yet that's been done. Yeah, there's there's um, so much to unpack there that you know that we could do we could do probably yeah, you know three or four three or four podcasts just on just on just on you know that that one that one uh, set of things you just talked about. But um, I want to I want to see if I can I can uh, do my best to try and focus in on a specific example of biological modeling based on something that, that you brought up, which is the you know the the squishing of something between two glass slides and then using it in a microscope. So it used to be that to observe the world we used our eyes. 
Uh, we, we didn't we sort of, we more or less didn't have much. I mean, we used our other senses as well and things like that. Um, but then people, you know, with respect to specifically to biology, people develop microscopes and they're all of a sudden like, oh my God, look at, look at all this stuff that's going on at this smaller scale. Now we can see things at that smaller scale. And then the scales at which we could view things got smaller and smaller and smaller with things like electron microscopes and things like that. Uh, but, but typically, just like you were talking about squishing, you squish that poor cell between the glass slides and it goes flat. Um, often this meant changing the, the contents of the cell by coloring it or, or or just it has to be a dead cell in order for you to view it certain ways um but with basically biology becoming a you know sort of becoming a data science and being able to do computational modeling one thing you can do is is basically train programs to look at the surface of living cell and infer what's going on with all the organelles and other kinds of things inside if i'm getting it I'm probably getting that wrong, but like there's some version of this, right? That like, so you don't actually have to kill the cell, but you can, based on millions of examples, you can sort of infer what's going on by observing the surface and like using basically pattern matching. Right. I, I would say that that's a little beyond my own expertise, but colleague is the type of thing that colleagues have worked on. Um, like one notable example would be um, so a, a former PhD student in our department worked on, or a couple of former PhD students, excuse me, worked on, they were at, at Allen Cell Institute and they were working on what are called um, bright field images of cells. So they're grayscale. Um, the cells, you don't have to kill them, that's nice, but they're low res images of the cells. And it's a, you know, you would think of this as a simplistic form of microscopy, but it has the benefit that the cells are living and you can visualize them interacting. Um, but that was in contrast to much more cutting edge approaches like in fluorescent microscopy. Um, that's another thing that I don't think maybe many people would appreciate that there's still extreme advances going on in terms of microscopy, right? Um, but what these, these two folks did and, and a few others worked on was taking the bright field images and saying, maybe, you know, the human eye can only see so much and that there actually is something that can be inferred from that on a deeper level. And so let's train a computer, right? In other words, build an algorithm that sounds more AI than it, than it really is, but build an algorithm that is able to infer a lot of patterns from that and then predict what they think that computer thinks or the algorithm thinks that the fluorescent microscopy versions of those images would be. And I remember they showed that to our students at a, an industry event and it, I couldn't believe it. And apparently they said that is the same sort of um, reaction that they've, they've had anytime they show biologists because it's just a mind blowing thing to look at that you can take one form of data that seems so primitive and infer something that's much, much higher resolution from that. Um, and that's an amazing thing too. Yeah, and it's, it's reminded me, I don't know if we want to go down this path, but um, uh, one thing that, that was so interesting um, about the, about, you know, for me, sort of looking at the book and stuff is seeing the parallel language to physics, concepts like coarse graining and emergence and things like that, which aren't metaphors, given the way that biology is being done, being done now, if, 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 if I understand it correctly, like it's, it's kind of like the same kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And and just uh just before we go on, maybe to move on to the last part of the interview, where we talk about the sort of like you know how you how you pulled off these kinds of projects and things like that, and and specifically the the what 
the the, pro, the bigger project that this book came out of. At the very beginning of the book, you do you do have this great example where you bring co computation, you know, computer science and biology biology together with the example of Alan Turing and the zebra spots um, or stripes. Pardon me. So I was wondering <laughs> if you could just uh, maybe talk for, for uh, just tell that story just you know briefly so people can see that see that connection. Sure. So Alan Turing. I mean, now they once they've made a movie about him starring Benedict Cumberbatch. He's entered the public eye, but um, so many people have now heard of Alan Turing, but he's famous for a couple of things. He was a, a famed code breaker who broke um, Nazi codes working at Bletchley Park in England during World War II. Um, and he also conceptualized what a computer is on a bit, very basic level. He said, it's the same sort of, of thing that we're talking about in terms of building models. He said, essentially, can I build a model of what a computer might be and what abilities it might have that's as, as simply represented as we can come up with? And so his theoretical computer, he didn't even, there's no implementation of that computer needed. The idea is just to theorize it. Um, his computer says you have a, a reader. So the reader is like a, a camera of sorts that can read out symbols on a tape. The tape is as, as long as you like it to be, but the tape only has symbols printed on it. Each cell of the tape has a, a single symbol. In a classical formulation, you have either a zero, a one, or a blank printed on a symbol, on a, on a cell. So for example, you can, you can have a string of zeros and ones that might represent a longer number. Um, and so Turing was able to show that you could do an enormous number of things with a computer whose only abilities are to read something off of the, the tape. And based off of the current state it's in, the, the, the machine has a finite number of internal states. So if I'm in state 37 and I see a zero, I'm gonna change the zero to a one, I'm gonna move one cell to the right and I'm gonna enter state 43. So that's always the, steps it's going to take if it's in state 37 and it sees that zero on the tape it's always going to do that so it doesn't have any flexibility that conception of a computer from the 30s is as powerful as the most powerful supercomputer on the planet today and there's a hypothesis that any computer that we could ever come up with could be represented you know anything it does could be represented by some set of instructions on what's called a Turing machine. So Turing's famous for this because that's an amazing development. It's in the 30s, right, that he essentially lays these foundations of computer science upon which no one has advanced since that time, even though we have wonderful devices. Um, but he's also famous for one paper in biochemistry where he proposed that the reason why zebras have, have stripes might be as the result of a relatively simple system in which two different types of particles are interacting according to some rules. And because of those rules, you see a segregation. Although it's not perfect, if you zoom in on a zebra, you won't see perfect black regions and perfect white regions. It's the same for a fish. For example, you zoom in on a fish that has stripes and it's not a, they're not perfect. Uh, you know, you have a light blue stripe and a dark blue stripe. Not every pigment cell is light blue or dark blue in those stripes. Um, but you would see some segregation that when, again, thinking from the perspective of zooming out from a holistic 
perspective of seeing a photo of the fish or a photo of the zebra, you see stripes. Um, and that was just one paper in this area. And in his honor, patterns like what we see on the zebra, or what we see on zebra fish or puffer fish are called Turing patterns um, based off of this hypothesis that it's based off of actually a very small, simple set of rules, the same sort of thing that Turing worked on with respect to computers. Um, and this has been validated in zebra fish that the pigments of, of zebra fish, you know, the pigment cells form stripes because of a simple set of rules that are similar to what Turing was talking about. And so the purpose of that sort of introduction to the book is to explain what a, a sample Turing pattern system might be. What are the rules that dictate two types of particles interacting almost in kind of a predator-prey relationship? And then to be able to zoom out from that and see whether or not patterns are indeed forming um, as a result. You captured a really great um, and, and fascinating ambiguity there in, 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 in biology, but when you talk about the reason zebras have stripes, because from this, from this sort of particle-based modeling explanation, like the reason is because this is how these particles that are that we're, we're operate according to these rules and are in various states interact under certain conditions. That's the reason that there are stripes. But the reason that that the, the sort of like this sort of, I guess, this sort of um, evolutionary reason that zebras have stripes, we actually don't, we don't really have a sort of complete answer to that yet, right? I think you say in your book that we're pretty, pretty people are pretty sure it's because it helps keep flies off the zebras, but it captures that, that difference of uh, the totally different and that type of analysis you do given the, the scale at which you're looking at the phenomena. But then apparently other, other researchers said, well, you don't need stripes to keep the flies off. As long as it were some type of black and white pattern, you could use a checkerboard. So why did they evolve the stripes versus some other way of organizing the skin and, and alternating patterns of light and dark? It's not clear. Yeah, and no, I, just, I just love that example because it goes like, e even with all the like amazing stuff we can do nowadays, um, not, not just like with the, the specific machines, but with the, you know, the sort of concepts like, you know, the relatively recent in human history concept of a Turing machine. I mean, the things we can do uh, at all these different scales, but there's still these like, you know, really big problems to solve uh, and, and answers to find, which is what makes it such a fascinating field. Um, and, and so uh, the, the book, the book um, uh, came out of a larger project called Biological Modeling, uh, if I understand it correctly, which is a free course. And well, of course, everything that I've been talking about, there'll be links to in the transcript for, the, for, for, this, uh, for this interview. Um, but I was wondering if you could just talk about that from the, you know, bracketing the kind of science of it, just from the project level. Um, and you've set up, you know, a number of successful projects like, like or worked on and, uh, with other people like Rosalind and the, the Coursera course and things like that. Um, but you you started this, I believe, with a with a Kickstarter campaign. Well, no, it's it's not quite. So it's okay. the project itself, the course, is um, funded by National Institutes of Health grant. Okay. And so we've worked, you know, to make a completely free and open online course um, for anyone to to take a look at and learn from. And I've worked on that with, um, you know, several students, undergraduate and master's students at Carnegie Mellon um, in computational biology who helped me build out parts of, of the course. Um, and then the idea was, well, we've, we've built this pretty gargantuan thing. The course is a collection of, of text modules. And then the idea of the course is that every, every so often you'll hit a point where we need to build the model and then look at it. And so Every time that happens, we have an, 
a link to a tutorial that shows you how to use modeling software to produce the model. And then we come back to the main text and, and um, analyze it. Um, so all of the, the main text itself was like 100,000 words. And then the tutorials, I think, are actually longer if you add them all up. So I realized we had quite a lot there. Um, and so I funded a, the, uh, a textbook project coming from the course, you know, packaging the main text of the course into a way that would be engaging in a PDF form or a printed form. Um, and we funded that by Kickstarter and then Indiegogo um, starting in December, and we're finalizing publication of it currently. And um, just for those those listening who are sort of who are interested in setting up projects like this, um, uh, maybe not everybody's going to get National Institutes of, Institutes of Health grants uh, to begin their projects, but there are there are you know sort of people who you know are interested in sort of you know Indiegogo and Kickstarter. And I was very curious actually about why what happened that you used both Kickstarter and Indiegogo. This was just doing some due diligence on best practices for campaigns, and Kickstarter has a timeline. And what I would suggest to anybody is find these resources and follow what they say, because I think that they're backed in research and results and, and they make sense. So um, for example, don't have a campaign that lasts six years. You know, you might think you're maximized your revenue that way or whatever, but it doesn't, you know, it's nice to have very clearly defined projects and relatively short timelines in terms of funding and that type of thing. But because Kickstarter's time, time frame uh, ends after a set period of time where everything is all or nothing, uh, in terms of the funding. Um, after that period of time, you can still, if you're still in the process of making something, you can uh, have the exact same project on Indiegogo. There's a relationship between the two platforms and they will simply port over all of your uh, information about the project, including how much you raised and they cross-link. And so it's essentially one project on two different platforms. Okay, I thought I thought I saw that that they they actually had a maybe this happened years ago, but that they actually had established a connection with each other rather than acting as total competitors, which is what I had, had naively viewed them as. Uh, that's that's really fascinating. And as you say, that they're sort of using their experience and their data and theory to kind of like help people actually genuinely complete their projects and set them up properly. And that you know Kickstarter might be good for one part, and then Indiegogo might be better for another part. That's really really fascinating. And specifically when it came to to writing the book, so um. You've used our, our upload feature on LeanPub to get it to get it onto the site and onto the platform. It's a very well-made book, um, and it has all sorts of cool features like these laptop icons in the margins that people can click on that take them to particular like you know, appropriate parts of the course or other places online. And I was wondering if you could just talk about what um, for the any authors listening uh, or would-be authors listening, what tool did you use or tools did you use to create uh, the ebook? Oh, so I use because I'm a mathematician, I use LaTeX. Um, which is typesetting software that is sort of um, very, very much used by mathematicians, often with all the defaults on. So you can tell a, a document that mathematicians produce because it's, it's in the same sort of computer modern Donald Knuth fonts. Um, but LaTeX Late, Late has a wonderful system and it has a ton of packages and add-ons and so on um, where you can do quite a lot of things, especially if you're not like an artsy person like me. I would have a hard time going from like a, the HTML of our course and converting that into like Adobe Illustrator or something like that. But I'm, I'm technical, so I can handle sort of the Cody aspects of LaTeX. And then there's, um, there's a, a package called Memoir, 
that that someone someone produced as an add-on for LaTeX with a you know like a 650 page PDF documenting everything that you can do with it and it's really nice for longer documents and customizable fonts and things like that so um, that's something that I used for for this book and it it means that it's relatively powerful right so yeah if you want to put have a, calls to the margin of hyperlinks to our website that are these laptop icons it's it's really winds up just being one command that you write all the code for behind the scenes and that type of thing and so that means you were writing in, in plain text files and things like that yes it's essentially a dot txt right 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 yeah. okay okay um, yeah, no, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that. It's, it's, it's always fascinating. Um, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things about uh, the fact that LeanPub sort of attracts so many people who are, are technically minded is that they, they often have, you know, very kind of like sophisticated and somewhat bespoke sort of methods for making their own books. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they're, if they're not using one of our own, our own book writing processes. Um, and it's always so interesting to hear about them. The last question um, sure. that I always like to ask uh, on, on the podcast, if the guest is, is using LeanPub as a platform, is um, if there was one magical feature that we could build for you, or if there was one terribly awful thing that had you shouting at the screen every time you went to our website that we could fix for you, um, can you think of anything that you could ask us, you would ask us to do? I don't know if I would. Um, that's a good question. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it, but um, I'd probably need more time to think. Okay. Well, uh, no problem. Actually, you, you wouldn't, you're probably not going to be surprised at what half the time that's what people say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, please, please get in touch anytime if you have, uh, with me, if you ever have it, think of, think of anything. Um, uh, you know, one of the reasons in, insofar as LeanPub is the platform that it is, it's because we've asked this question of, of many authors over the years and getting their feedback about, you know, this would be great or that would be great, or this is awful, or you don't need that and things like that. Uh, but that being said, well, Philip, thank you very much uh, for taking the time out of your day to do this, this interview. Um, uh, as, as I'm sure people listening, there were so many things that we could have talked about for so much longer. Uh, but if you're interested in learning more about all of this, um, Philip's you know, been a part of and, and produced himself so much, so much really interesting content that's available, much of it for free, that you can find if you, um, uh, you know, listen to what we were talking about here, or if you go to the links in the transcript that we'll publish on the website where you can find, uh, you know, the sources of all the things that we talked about. So thank you very much, Philip, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Anna. It's great to be here. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.